Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another edition of Moving to Live. As you heard in the intro, we are a podcast for movement and exercise professionals, amateur aficionados. If you like to move, if you want to learn more about moving, what we try to do with Moving to Live is interview a variety of people in the movement field, all with the idea that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Movement should be a lifestyle, not just an activity. And we try to have people in a variety of careers so we can break down the knowledge silos because the big idea is if more people understand the importance of movement, it can help improve the quality of life. Two weeks ago, we were talking to Brian Sutton, who works for the NASM, and he told us his story from starting out as a golfer and a martial art artist to ending up in what he is currently doing now, actually not ending up, he's still progressing. He's the content and production manager for the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Brian, thanks for coming back for a second part of an interview. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. So I, I appreciate your time and uh, everything that you're doing to get uh, some wonderful content out there for individuals. One of the things I thought was really amusing when I went back and read the or listened to the first part of the interview was you commented a number of times you were in a dead-end job and you had to make one more sale so that you could have that job for the next mm -hmm. month. Mm -hmm. The first thing that came to mind to me, and this is probably because a couple of days ago I interviewed Don Moxley and we talked a lot about stress, is during that time you were doing that, that must have been an extremely stressful time knowing that if you didn't make a sale or you didn't make X number of sales, you were out of a job. It was stressful. Um, thinking back on it, you know, I'm in my... Uh, late 20s. Um, I've been doing this now for five plus years at, you know, working sales, um, dead end sales jobs too. They weren't, they weren't fun by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I felt like I was stuck. I was pigeonholed. You know, all my experience was leading me down this path. And um, at one point, I think I just hit a breaking point. I'm like, you know what? 
if I want to better my life, if I want to actually enjoy where I work, you know, because we all work 40 hours a week, sometimes more, um, enjoying what you do is, is, is incredibly important. Uh, I, it was a, a learning experience that chasing a paycheck was not satisfying enough for me. So even though it was incredibly stressful to go down a different path, I was just at my breaking point. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I have to be a bit more selfish and find out what I'm going to do. Even if I fall flat on my face, I'm going to take that risk. And, and I got to that point. I know one of the great things about moving to live is I get to interview a wide variety of people. And some of the most interesting comments come when we are talking before or after the recording. And I, you're saying this reminded me of somebody that I interviewed who, when they switched jobs, they said, you know, I really think a year, 18 months after doing the switch that I've added at least 15 years to my life because my stress levels are less. There's still mm-hmm. things I don't like, but overall it's just taken the quality of my life and put it up a couple of notches. When you walked out the door after essentially telling your team leaders, take this job and shove it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, do you remember sitting in your car and going, what the hell did I do? Or do you remember sitting in your car and saying, wow, I feel so much better. I felt like a new man. I had this giant weight lifted off my shoulders. Yeah, I was nervous because, I mean, rent was was coming up, you know, but uh, it was more of a sense of relief than anything else. I'm like, well, now I'm here, so you better come up with an action plan and, and step on the gas because you still have bills to pay. And so I wasted no time. I went straight back to my apartment. I put together my resume, picked up the phone, I, and it felt invigorating. It really did. It was, uh, was I nervous? Sure. But not to the point where it was going to paralyze me. I was, I was just gung ho, 100%. Now I'm going after it. And um, NASM, they did hire me. It took several weeks, and so I had to live off a credit card. You know, that's. I'm sure you know lots of young people do that from time to time, but it was well worth it. It was well worth it because I, I, like you just mentioned, I. I honestly believe I added 15 years to my life. I would have nightmares. I wasn't sleeping well because I just dreaded going to work each day. It was impacting my personal relationships. And then as soon as I switched gears, all that seemed to disappear. And you mentioned two weeks ago that your first job with NASM was sales. You knew you didn't like sales. You knew you wanted to be involved in the fitness world, which is why you applied to NASM. Why did you make the decision to apply to NASM as opposed to saying, I'm going to open my own facility or I'm going to start training more people as a personal trainer? A uh, couple good reasons. One, my own basic personality. I am, even though I made this big leap and I took a risk, by nature, I'm pretty risk averse. Like if you ever look at my stock portfolio, I'm pretty <laughs> risk averse, right? I, I tend to play it safe. Um, and so just the thought of trying to open up my own facility was daunting. Yeah, it would, it would, have, been, it would have been neat. Um, but trying to write a business plan, go get a loan from the bank, find the property, buy the equipment, that, that seemed overwhelming. Um, but I knew if I can get my foot in the door with NASM or another type of company like that, I would still... I would feed my passion without having to actually own my own business. Cause I mentioned 
you know, in the first segment that my dad owned his own business for several years, he was an accountant, he had a small accounting firm, and I watched him work 60, 70 hour weeks just trying to make payroll. And I didn't want to go down that road. I was trying to better my life. And I felt for me to better my life, it would be with an already an established company, not creating something for myself. I'm curious. I know a number of people have worked as directors of education for the NSCA, and I know how incredibly busy their schedules are. And I'm sure yours is similar. Do you still do some sort of personal training on the side? I do. I do. Um, not as often as I used to because NASM keeps me pretty busy. Um, but every now and again, I'll get the bug or it's just an opportunity that just comes up to me. Um, just uh, right now, I, am, I, I have one client. So I, I train him once a week and I do some online coaching for him. Um, and he's a great guy, great client. And, you know, it keeps, keeps, keeps me feeling like I have more than just education behind my background. You know, I have this personal experience and I do like the fact that I'm helping him. Um, he's 300 pounds. He's got diabetes, heart disease, gout. Um, he suffers from depression. And so, you know, it's one, this is our common client nowadays you find. And so just being able to help him is, has been satisfying you know and uh, i love to see his progress every workout he's getting better and better he's very engaged with me on text messaging you know telling me he's going for his walks and what he ate today and uh, how what we're doing is improving his outlook because he, he always talks about this dark cloud um but when we get together that dark cloud seems to disappear for, at least for a short term so it's it's been fun um but no i don't train as much as i used to also because you know i'm, I'm married and i got a couple kids and so i'm a, I'm a baseball coach and I, I you know all those other things keeps me pretty busy too i know i see five or six clients a week simply because as you I think part of the goal is to help people, but I also firmly believe that if in your if you're in education, you should be a practitioner. So you I know, agree. like rather than just saying, there's too many researchers out there. Uh, not so much. Well, if you think in the medical field or or anything in the movement field, who all they do is research, and it's like, well, this is what the lab tests show. And I know there's people out there that say, well, there's the lab tests and there's the things you do, and you have to follow those principles. But everybody's an N of one. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, one of the things we preach here at NASM, and I know a lot of other companies do it as well, as, you know, evidence-based practice, right? Well, if we define what that means, yes, it's been researched and proven in the lab, but then it's also used out in the real world and is clinically applicable. So if, if, if you don't have both of those things, it, then it, it really doesn't matter for the end user, the person who can potentially benefit from this. So yes, I want it to be based on science, but then I also have to be able to use it with my clients and they have to be able to, to do it on their own or be willing to do it. If they're not willing to do it, or if I can't apply it, then it really doesn't matter so much what the research says, because no one's going to be able to, whatever that technique is, or that new diet strategy is, uh, you know, adherence is everything. You know, so if we want to improve health, if we want to improve our movement quality, then whatever that intervention is, it has to be applicable. So. And, and it may be for this client that you described, just having somebody who encourages them to move has a huge change on their psychological outlook. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, I really do feel that way. Um, he looks forward to our workout sessions. Um, his his demeanor changes, you know, when I see him on a, a workout day versus, you know, maybe just a, a family get together when we get the kids together to play or whatever it may be. Um, yeah, I, I've seen tremendous changes in his own demeanor and his own outlook. And, you know, over my time as a personal trainer, I, that's one of the greatest gifts that fitness professionals have is it's not only how they impact the person physically, but it's how they impact them emotionally as well. You know, when you're able to give somebody that their own self-confidence and give them their life back where they can do the things they wanted to do or feel the way they want to feel, that's it's a really cool good thing to do. It's, it's an awesome gift and an honor to have. I think it's vastly underrated the effect that movement can have on quality of life, even sure. if it's not measurable. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, for example, like I was listening to a podcast with Pete McCall. I don't know if you know Pete McCall. He used to work for ACE. He was a colleague of mine uh, here at NASM for a while. Great guy. And one of the things he mentioned on this podcast, he says, uh, fitness is freedom. And it's something I thought about. I'm like, absolutely. It's the freedom to do the physical tasks that you want to do without being hindered, right? So whether it's playing with your kids or going for a hike or a bike ride or mowing the lawn, physical fitness gives you that freedom where you're not hindered anymore to do those tasks that you love. I'm an avid golfer. You know, one of the reasons why I exercise uh, is so I can improve my golf game. I'm very competitive with myself when I play golf. And so I will do golf conditioning because I know next week I'm going to go play golf and I'm going to play in a tournament and I want to kick everyone's butt, but I also want to show myself that I've improved my game. And so exercise is an outlet for that. It also gives you the potential if your wife decides to give you a golf weekend where you can play 72 or twice that amount of golf on the weekend, you have the fitness level to do it. Boy, now you're talking about my dream weekend. I don't know <laughs> if that's ever going to happen, but yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, um, well, one of my favorite experiences, it was a graduation gift from my dad when I graduated high school. We went up to Lake Tahoe and uh, we were playing 36 holes a day for about 10 days straight. It was so much fun, you know, but having that physical freedom to do that is... Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, that, that's the important gift that I think movement and exercise gives us. You started out at sales at NASM. You've already said you didn't like sales. How did you decide, because I know there are a number of different offices and departments, how did you decide education is where I want to be? Sure. I'm a self-professed exercise geek. Um, ask my wife. She knows. Um, my, my office is littered with textbooks, um, so I'm always I'm I'm either I'm either reading a textbook, I'm reading research, I'm listening to a podcast, I'm always just trying to stay abreast of what's going on because it interests me, because it's actually fun. Um it's it's one of those things where it's not I don't consider it work. Um I yeah, I have a job where I work 40 plus hours a week and I work hard, but it's not work for me. It's actually a lot of fun. Uh so I always knew I wanted to learn more and learn more and learn more. And I still, I'm, I'm 42 and I just have that driving appetite to continue to learn and improve my skill set um, and, and my knowledge base. And so when I was working at NASM in the sales 
from day one, I knew, okay, what can I do to convince the education team that I can be a valuable member? And so I just harassed them as much as I could with my graduate work and sent them papers and tried to corner them. I had meetings with them like, what are you doing? Where are you going? You know, what can I do to help? I would, I would write blogs just to send to them. It was, but it was fun for me. It was, it was I, th- a lot I think it's important to mention on that, that I would imagine when you were writing the blogs that you weren't getting extra money for that. That was something. No, no, no. This was all free. Yeah. No, this was just all on my own time. Uh, but through that process, I, I, I developed new skill sets that I didn't have before. Yeah, I was personal training, but now I learned how to write. Um, and I became more proficient at writing. Um, I took courses on then copy editing. And going from where I was in 2004 to now in 2018, my skill set has, has changed dramatically because not only now do I have a lot of you know, knowledge regarding exercise science, but I've taken courses on instructional design. I've taken courses on copy editing. I've taken courses on, you know, just how to be a, a better writer. And so because my job is developing curriculum, it's not just a content expert. Um, we have to do a good job here at NASM to not only provide good content, but we have to provide it in a way that's digestible for the students so they can maximize their learning. So I've developed new skill sets on top of just the exercise part now. You mentioned also that your first writings that you gave to your mentors came back covered with red ink. Oh, and sure. Think, and I think that's a great thing to comment on because there are a lot of people who, when they read what ends up on the NAS, NASM website or a paper that you write or the textbook, they think, oh, well, you know, Ryan just probably sat, sat down and popped that out in two or three hours. Never. <laughs> and I think people forget that good writing takes multiple versions, multiple mm-hmm. edits, and sometimes giving it to somebody else who doesn't look at it the way you do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, everything I've written uh, is peer-reviewed. We do that here at NESM. All content is peer-reviewed, uh, especially if it's, if it's going in our educational material. Uh, so whether it's me peer-reviewing someone else's work or someone else peer reviewing my work, uh, every piece, piece of content goes through multiple iterations before it's determined like, okay, it, it's good to go. Um, we're building a new product right now and it's gonna be a large one. We got 22 different authors and we got five different peer reviewers. So every single chapter is being peer reviewed minimum of three times before it gets to my desk and I peer review it again. So it's, it's one of those things, you know, we, we have to make sure that we get it right and we get it right the first time. The only way you do that is through iteration. The first draft is never the final draft. I went to an undergraduate school that was a liberal arts college, so I wrote in every class, and I moved a few years ago and finally cleared out all my college stuff, which I graduated in 1990, so I'm a little older than you. Uh And looking back at it, and this is, as I said, a few years ago, I looked at it, my writing was really bad compared to where it is now. <laughs> <laughs> so was mine. I mean, I looking mean, back at some of the blogs I wrote for, for, for Doug Holt back in the day, I'm like, oh, now it's like cringeworthy. I'm like, goodness. I, I remember looking at a couple of advanced exercise phys papers and going, oh, this is really bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious, 
somebody's listening to this and they're aware of NASM and they're aware that there are certification exams and there are textbooks, et cetera, but what exactly does a content and production manager do? Sure. So at NASM, we provide certification and continuing education courses for fitness professionals. You know, your, your personal trainers, your strength and conditioning coaches. Um, we have content for athletic trainers and, and exercise physiologists. Uh, so my job at the end of the day is to put those courses and certifications uh, together. So I will work with um, determining what the scope is for that product, that educational course. So let's say it's our personal trainer or certified personal trainer course. Um, and then once we define the scope and the vision, then we will go out and reach out to subject matter experts to help provide the content. And we'll, we'll begin writing that new textbook. And as I mentioned earlier, everything gets peer reviewed multiple, multiple, multiple times. And then from there, we'll build all the ancillary assets that go around that text. So it's uh, directing video shoots, it's uh, writing exam test questions and building study guides and study aids and all the fun tools that will then help the learner learn the content and pass that certification exam. So it can be anywhere from a big certification course that takes about 12 months to build to a small continuing education course that will take you know, three months to build. But at the end of the day, my job is to make sure that that educational experience is uh, the gold standard. From listening to this, there's an obvious question that I know some people would ask. I personally am a big fan of certification because it starts out, it means that people have met a basic standard. Mm -hmm. And I'm a huge fan of continuing education because as you were commenting, things change so rapidly. Sure. But do you ever have people contact you and say, well, why do you have, or do you, you talk to people at conference and say, well, why is there certification? Or I don't need certification because I know what I need to know. Sometimes. Uh, not so much now as in the past. You know, think in the late 90s, at least from my career, the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, fitness certification was kind of more the wild, wild west. Um, I think there's more industry standards now where most gyms want to hire personal trainers that have an accredited cert. So at least it's getting more accepted in the fitness industry. Um, the one thing I have found is a person may go through a certification program, whether it's NASM, NSCA, ACSM, whoever. Uh, and they will learn the content needed to pass the test. But then once they start practicing, they may still only do their thing, right? So I could be John Doe and I got NASM certified and now that gets my meal ticket into the gym to, to train with clients, but I'm only gonna teach CrossFit. And that is unfortunately um, hurdles that the industry is still trying to overcome. And just so we don't narrow it down to CrossFit. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't have to be CrossFit, yoga, yeah. and I'm not, Pilates, yeah. powerlifting. Yeah. Sure, sure. I'm just giving it as an yeah. example. I'm not saying CrossFit's actually bad by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just saying it could be whatever their niche may be. Yeah. And I know with continue, continuing education, sometimes the interesting thing is somebody goes to a continuing education and you can immediately tell that they went to a continuing education because what they learned is immediately applied to every client for the next three weeks, whether or not it's qualified. Sure. Yeah. I, I'm guilty of doing that myself. I would go to a workshop or, you know, some type of conference and learn something new and come Monday morning, I'm doing that with my clients. Yeah. I, I think all of, we all do that, which is 
it, it's funny, but it's also, it, you know, it's kind of a compliment to the person putting on that mm -hmm. educational course because this the the attendees got something out of that and they want to share it with their clients. We're talking with Brian uh, Sutton. He works for NASM. I'm curious with another question you mentioned throughout here. You've got a bachelor's degree. You got a master's degree driving three hours. And then you decided to get another master's degree, and this one was online at Cal U. I guess yeah. my question would be, why? Why a master's degree? Why not a doctorate degree? And I know taking an online class when you did it about mm -hmm. over 10 years ago, yep. this was new. This was atypical. There sure. probably weren't more than three or four schools in the country doing it. Uh, well, it was for a few reasons. So as I mentioned earlier, my undergrad's in communication with a minor in sport management. So kind of unrelated to exercise science. And then I got a master's in sport and fitness management, which um, was still, in my opinion, unrelated or too, too far removed from the actual hardcore exercise science. So that's why I wanted to go through the Cal U program. NASM and Cal U have a partnership. Um, so I was actually, I was awarded a scholarship. So it wasn't out of, I, out of my pocket. And so I was awarded a scholarship and of course I'm, I'm going to take it. Um, ironically, I had just had a child. She was an infant and I'm talking a month old when I started the program. So it was tough because, you know, I was, I was on no sleep, <laughs> but it was, it was great. You know, I loved going through the program. I was not going to turn down that opportunity. Um, and now, ironically, I think I have my wife convinced to allow me to go get my doctorate. So we're actually investigating schools right now for now it's can I find a doctorate program that will allow me to continue to work while I while I get my doctorate. I know some people always say I'm, I'm too early or I'm too old to get more education. And the story I tell them is my dad went to law school at 74. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. See, there you go. I was, I was thinking, Oh, I'm 42. I don't know if I can do this, you know, but, uh, yeah, it, I, I, it's, it's going to happen. I just, it's, it's been an itch. I haven't been able to scratch for a long time and it's just, it's something, and it's not for career advancement. It's really just for my own personal fulfillment. I want to go get that doctorate. We've had the good fortune of talking to Brian Sutton for a two-part interview. This was part two. He is the director of content and production manager for the National Academy of Sports Medicine. I think he's given us a really good background on a varied way to get into the fitness and movement field. And what I really like about this interview, both parts, is the fact that from what he's described, it's pretty clear what you get doesn't happen overnight. And I suspect the success that he's having now is all because he did things like wrote blog posts for free and in a positive way was a pain in the ass to his <laughs> future, future college. Brian, I want to thank you for talking to Moving to Live. I've had a great time learning more about you. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you um, and, and get to you know, have this conversation and I look forward to listening to many of your more of, of your other podcasts down the road. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of moving to live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is traveling light by Jason Shaw. 
You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.